Hello and welcome to Adapod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Today, we talk to Paul Shetler about ethics in AI and the recent scandal involving a Chinese whistleblower in Australia. Please enjoy the episode, and don't forget to stick around after the episode to learn more about the ATA. Please enjoy. So here we are once again in the Australian Taxpayers Alliance office. We're here with Paul Shetler. Paul. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. So one of the topics I want to talk about today with you is the issue of ethics in AI. So essentially the idea is uh, when processing, when the processing power of computers gets advanced enough that they're actually going to be able to make decisions on behalf of humans Mm -hmm. that have human consequences. The developers are saying that they want to make sure that they're making decisions that are baked in with human perceptions of what's fair, good, and reasonable, right? right? Yeah. But you have a little bit of a, of a perspective on this that I think a lot of people haven't heard before. Okay. So do you want to tell us a little bit I about that? I do have a little bit of perspective on that. Yeah, so my, my, my big issue with ethics and AI is just the misuse of the word ethics. I mean, ethics implies that, you know, you've actually done some study of moral philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, that you're grounding this in some kind of overall theory of the good right. uh, and how that is supposed to work. And what actually, uh, what I think, what, well, actually not what I think, is what I've seen mm. uh, in most cases, the people who sort of bang on about ethics and AI have no background in philosophy, have no sense uh-huh. of, of, of the good, uh, but they do have a sense of politics mm-hmm. and they know that you know to say something is ethical is a much more effective way of getting people to do something you want than to say, hey, this is something I'd like you to do. Will you do it for me, please? Okay, so what you're saying is this isn't being put together by ethicists. by Not people. really, no. Oh. If you usually look at these things, I mean, there might be people who have some, to be honest with you, very few, yeah. Okay. I mean, very, very few. So I'm quite familiar with a lot of these sort of ethics and AI things that are going on in government, also in private sector, mm. and you would find very few people there who've actually studied ethics, uh, gotcha. very few people, but you do find an awful lot of people who have a sort of very progressive political agenda, right. uh, which they're dressing up with the word ethics, because <laughs> you know they, they'll use words like fairness, they'll use words like equity, mm. yes. they use all these kind of words that um, are really fraught with sort of almost emotional meaning as humans, we know we think we want things to be fair, sure. but they never define what fair is. Mm. Um, and so if you look at some of the recent guidelines that have come out, particularly the ones from the Department of Industry, really, um, they were really just very, I thought, frivolous okay. because they were using these big words, um, but without any kind of definition of what they meant, by the way, mm. which means it's really kind of a loophole so big you could drive a busload of bureaucrats <laughs> through it to try to enforce these things. Right. So the, these words you're describing are, for example, oh, human. feeling... Okay. human. Human. Wow. So what we want a more human, you know, uh, human-centered AI. Like, okay, so like <laughs> what other kind of AI would there be since we're all humans here? Right. You know, so yeah. by definition, what we're doing is human. I, I saw a tweet of yours on that saying uh, we want, you know, based on human ethics, which is as opposed to... Aliens? <laughs> you know? I don't know. Sponges? <laughs> you know? I mean, really, honestly, who else is having these discussions, right? Right. But maybe some other terms, and I'm not sure, I'm just speculating here, something like... Uh, so this is just purely my speculation, but is this something along the lines of uh, maybe safe? 
the, the word making people feel safe, yeah, which it's, today it's, has it's, a yes, lot of connotations. It's, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. use the word safe because what you really want to tell people to shut up. Uh, <laughs> right. you, if you feel uncomfortable saying shut up, yeah. so you say, you're making me feel unsafe. Right. right. And it's okay. what we saw on Twitter, I believe. And maybe this is a completely different ballgame, but essentially the, the whole shadow banning uh, software that they put in place apparently involved words like American flag, gone. Yeah, I think that's a slightly different yeah. question. But yeah, mm -hmm. but it's, it's really comes down to uh, euphemisms, right? For me, I, right. I, I much prefer that people be direct and say what they really mean, mm. rather than hide behind words which have, uh, which can be interpreted any different way, but which sound nice. You know, yeah. like no one, you know, like saying "be good." Okay, yeah, great. You, you know, Google saying "don't be evil." Right. Okay, great. Yeah, no. Well, I, I woke up this of? morning. I was planning on being evil, but gee, Google, <laughs> you know, you convinced me not to. I mean, right. who does that, right? Mm. But it's a way of sort of dressing up what you're doing in in very fancy clothing, mm. but it's really nothing there. So what, what are the implications of this, essentially? Because if, if computing, what, when computing I think there's reaches... big implications of it. Mm. Um, I think the big implications of it are when these things start getting codified sure. as standards or things which you must do, um, and then they're enforced by HR departments, right. they're enforced by you know, woke bureaucrats in government, um, they're not well-defined, um, that means, like I said earlier, it's a, you can drive a busload of bureaucrats to these things. It means that they build a whole scaffolding mm. for a whole new set of regulation, which is not defined in advance, sure. and which will be defined after it's already there, and it's too right. late to do anything mm. about it. Which is why I'm demanding, you know, expecting that people should be clear about it. Sure. And I think everybody should expect that, because mm. if they don't, they're going to wind up finding a whole truckload of regulation out there, that they had no idea was even being planned. Yeah, I got you. Well, I remember there was, uh, this was more on the left wing, but the right wing was kind of upset about it. This was in the States, mm. that they came up with some kind of system, this uh, uh, program, that could essentially look at people's backgrounds. You just fed mm. it through the program, and it would determine whether or not they needed a longer or shorter sentence. And oh, so like this is basically for uh, risk of recidivism. Yeah, that, that, so that's we it. Did, we had one of those when I was at Ministry of Justice, yeah. Yeah. We had basically a risk of serious recidivism calculator. And they were, uh, some, of them, some of them were upset about it. A lot, a lot of people on the left were, were kind of upset about this because mm. they thought that it uh, essentially disproportionately affected different racial groups, mm. things like that. And they said that essentially what needed to happen is that it needed to be maybe injected with a little bit more humanity. Yeah, well, basically, there's a you know, I, I like to talk about people creating artificial stupidity, you know, like <laughs> like not noticing things. I mean, I think mm. that's one of the one of the big problems right now is that um, computers are throwing up the data at us, um, and they're throwing up patterns at us, and we've sort of been programmed almost not to notice these patterns. Okay, and we've sort of been programmed not to notice this data, um, but the computers haven't been programmed not to, and they do notice it. Right. Um, and then we're sort of trying to figure out, well, what do we do about this? Um, there was a recent case that was quite interesting where I think some, I think it was at Google, uh, where they came out with some algorithms which they said, oh my gosh, you know, this is really terrible. Um, this discriminates against some group. I don't know which group it was. Okay. Um, and so they came up with another algorithm which did not discriminate so much against that group, but also which was much less effective at doing what it was supposed to do. I got you. Right? And it's sort of like, you know, to we have to dumb these things down right. to make them socially acceptable. Mm. Because there's a lot of myths that we have in our heads that are just too precious to allow us to, uh, to see reality for what it is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so I suppose what you're saying essentially is 
we should have some kind of moral basis to these. Uh, of course. Yeah. yeah but they're just not do. doing it. Right? So, so what you, would you suggest well, having I, like I, a group I think, of ethicists? I think, I think the clearest thing is, first off, you operate from a position of truth. Okay. You operate from a position of truth. You don't operate from a position of lies. Mm. You know, lying is unethical. Sure. You know what's ethical is not. The first thing is you tell the truth. Mm. Um, and then what do you do with that truth? Well, then you figure out, you know, then you look at it. You look at the information, you look at the situation, and you decide what's the right thing to do in that situation. Mm. But I think if you start out from a position of lies, sure. um, then you're never going to make an ethical decision. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Because yep, I, I think I, I think I kind of understand some of the uh, some of the things that some people would get upset over, even mm. though it's uh, so w with the with the case of the recidivism uh, algorithm saying. Oh, well, how... a lot of them are not that accurate, you know. And the thing about the recidivism calculations mm. are, there is, I mean, they could be a lot better than they are. Sure, you know, they're not, in fact, terribly accurate. Well, um, no, we, I, we saw that we saw that in UK. I mean, mm. it's, I mean, I don't object to people saying, oh my god, you know, these aren't great algorithms, they're not terribly predictive, right. they're not. Well, but let's say that they are good, they, they, okay. they, they, they actually have a good let's predictive model, right? Okay. And you, you feed someone's case through the machine, mm -hmm. and essentially it, see, it sees, well, this is a person who grew up in this neighborhood, mm -hmm. they have a last name or a first name that kind of associates it to uh, this group of people who have higher recidivism, uh, there's more crime in this area. Thus, we're going to make the conclusion. We're going to push out the conclusion that, in fact, this person is higher risk when maybe the individual himself yeah. isn't actually that high risk. Right. Uh, and so this is, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I could see how some people would become upset. Well, I could certainly see how some people would be upset with that, too, because mm -hmm. I think if you, what you want to do is you want to be accurate with these things, right? You do not just sort of want to go out there um, and just, you know, on the basis of a couple parameters, decide that somebody is, you know, worthy or unworthy of what you're trying to do. Mm. Um, it, the goal is to be accurate. Sure. The goal is to be telling the truth. Mm. The goal is not just to be, you know, uh, overly general. And right. I think, you know, that's that's one of the problems with some, with some of these recidivism calculators. I mean, there is there actually is a problem with some of them. Sure. We, we had that problem in the UK, I know, because I was Chief Digital Officer of the Ministry of Justice, and right. we had these calculators. Um, and they could have been a lot better. Mm. They could have been a lot better. Um, they're just not that good at predicting. So how, how important, if, if you were to put things on a balance, what's more important? Kind of getting the uh, team of ethicists to come in and really put the big brain uh, uh, morality into it, or is it more about just accuracy and proper uh, learning? I think it's both. I think you need to have, you need to actually have the data, you actually have to have uh, information that mm. you can deal with uh, that is real, um, and that is, you know, if you're aware of a bias, Mm -hmm. um, to remove it. Uh, and by a bias, I don't mean something which says, you know, X is more likely than Y, right. because if X actually is more likely than Y, but I mean a bias that says X is more likely than Y when it's not. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that's, that's quite clear bias. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of the statistical meaning of bias. Um, In your experience, is that relatively easy to detect? Uh, bias is not that difficult to detect. Mm. It's not, actually. Um, so... You want to make sure that you have clear data sets, sure. clean. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you've got that, you know you still want to know you're doing the right thing. So right. suppose you come out with an algorithm that says um, we have X percent likelihood that if this person that this person owes, let's say robo debt, let's just oh, say robo yeah, debt, yeah. right? Okay. You know, and they came up with an algorithm that said, you know, wow, you know, eighty percent likely that this person is going to owe money or whatever, mm. but twenty percent they're not, right? Now. 
is it ethical to then send out debt notices to everybody? Well, this is the problem. The government did that, right? right. So this is the <laughs> issue, right? So you know that's where the ethical decision comes in. Sure. You still have the information. Then you decide what you do with it. You know you still got a certain amount of error or not. Mm. You know it may have an impact on people's lives or not. Uh, you know that it probably, if you were going to make those decisions as a person, right. you'd probably go back and check a bit further. Sure. Um, and they did none of those things. Mm. Right. Okay. Well, th th I totally agree with you. Very little I disagree on there. Awesome. Let's, uh, <laughs> but let's move it cool. away from the government and into the uh, private sector because yeah. I think those have very different implications. The government has different obligations yeah, uh, to the population than corporations do. Yeah. So what happens, for example, when these types of programs can determine, for example, someone's health insurance premium or how much someone should pay for their car insurance or, mm -hmm. for example, what their interest rate should be on a credit card, things like that. Uh, could could we see some some issues in that uh, in that regard? I'm sure you probably could. I'm sure. I mean, in theory, I'm sure you could, right? I mean, like, I think you can in theory see problems in almost any situation. Mm -hmm. The question is, do we see them? Right. Um, and if you do, then what do you do about them? Um, and if you're seeing a situation where um, I don't know, some individuals or some group or whatever, actually, it doesn't really matter how you classify people. I think if, if some if some group of people is being harmed. Uh, by a decision which is wrong, um, which is, for whatever reason, not harming the company, right. so it's not harming their profits, mm -hmm. um, then you might start to wonder if there's some case for some kind of regulation or like that, something like that in that particular situation. Right. Um, I would tend to think that in a lot of those cases where companies are making wrong predictions, yep. they're losing out on business. Right. Yep. So someone else is going to take it, and ultimately it would harm them. Now, if we were really operating in a free market, that's what you would expect to see happen. Right. Um, I sort of wonder, you know, obviously the market isn't quite as free as we would like it to be. It's right. pretty heavily dominated by monopoly, so mm. you've got to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, well, I think, I think we've kind of reached the natural conclusion of this uh, subject, so we'll move on to another issue, yeah, yeah. which uh, we've been talking a lot about kind of privately, but uh, it's obviously all over the news. Mm. Um, and we essentially have a Chinese whistleblower. And he's telling us all the things that we kind of already knew, mm -hmm. but now it's putting it into into perspective. Now right. there's actual And this is the one that the Chinese office in Shanghai is trying to claim, the police in Shanghai are trying to claim the gangs or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. No, and that it's that there, there's no truth to it. And of uh, I mean, it's just that, well, whatever. I don't even know where to start. So essentially, mm. um, where do we start? How about we start with the apparent plan to infiltrate the parliament? I think so. it's very likely, isn't it? Mm. I mean, if you look at Chinese actions abroad. Oh. I mean, you've got to consider China is a country which is an emerging great power. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the first country to challenge U.S. hegemony around the world since the end of the Cold War. Right. Uh, that's a long time. And, you know, at the time of the Cold War, uh, both the United States uh, and its NATO allies, as well as the Soviet Union, were... You know, going all over the place, trying to affect each other's governments and to sure. infiltrate this and infiltrate that. Mm. It would be shocking if the Chinese were not doing that now. Of course. It would be absolutely like, whoa, yeah. what's going on here? Are they no longer human? <laughs> right? I mean, that's what people do. So, yeah, I think it's quite... I, the only thing I'm surprised about yeah. has been the sort of weird reaction of, you know, governments and parties... Yeah. to this news, the sort of denial, it's like, oh no, it's not really happening, you know. Right. A lot of people have a very strong interest in strong uh, commercial relations That's right. with China. 
Um, and I think right now it's just that's throwing it in the high relief right now. Yeah, of course. Well, as you say, I, I did. You know, obviously, it is very important, significant news. It's the first time that it's happened here in Australia that uh, a spy at that level has decided to. Yeah, do it's this. big news. I mean, it's big. But as you say, who's surprised? Well, the funny it's thing impressive, is, but not surprising. Yes, the funny yeah. thing is, people are acting surprised, <laughs> and the funny thing is also, people. Some people are sort of like, ah, it's not really happening. You know, there is a fair amount of denial. Um, which Incredible. I find shocking. Incredible. I want to talk about something, and uh, there's really not a lot of consensus currently, which is why I really want to talk about it now. Mm. Um, the guy who apparently, the, 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 the whistleblower says that there was one particular candidate that they were going to attempt to kind of run as a Manchurian candidate. Mm. He was a car salesman, I forget his name, mm. uh, and he ended up dead some months ago. Well. Yes. Uh, this candidate, Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. <laughs> exactly, much like Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> um, but this is the candidate who was going to run in Gladys Liu's district, and she's now currently holding that seat. And we remember the controversy around Gladys Liu. Yes. I'm sure you remember Yeah, I remember it. some of that, yeah. Uh, I mean, ScoMo says that I'm a racist for, for asking questions. Am I? Uh... I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I don't know enough about Gladys Liu because I just don't. Mm. I mean, I've, I've heard stuff. Okay. I mean, look, there's, I just think at this point, you have to assume that there's been extensive Chinese infiltration sure. of politics and of business yes. all the way across Australia, right? I mean, you look at the fact that 38% of our exports go there, yeah. according to Matt Berry. Uh, you look at the fact that, you know, our education system is basically dependent oh. upon Chinese students. Oh, yeah. The real estate boom is largely dependent upon Chinese investment. That's right. Um, you've got, you know, who buys our coal? Who buys the minerals? Who buys the... Yeah. China is the primary customer for these yeah. things. So there's a huge amount of interplay, right. economic interplay. Mm. And people are going to be, you know, the way people are and the way government is. Yeah. You know, there's a certain amount of corruption. There will be lots of shady dealings, all kinds well, of them. Indeed. And I'd be very surprised... If there's only one person in Parliament, oh, me too, absolutely. You know? I mean, given yeah. the you know the, the, the very shady contributions they're making to labor mm. uh, and others, um, and I mean, come on, I mean, just like you know, suitcases full of money. Mm. I mean, money has no political bias. That's yeah. certainly I mean, so. It's it's, yeah. it's it's happening, right? And it's sure. been out there for a while. Mm. The news has been out there for a while. It's like this is like a big story, sure. But it's a big story in a context we already knew about for a while. Yeah. But no one's done much about it, which I find, which is still what I find strange. Yeah. No one's well, really uh, doing much about it. I think, I think the story is a little bit more sexy because it talks about a spy mm. and a covert operation and an attempt to infiltrate the government at the direct behest of the Chinese government. But we already yeah. see these types of collaborations. That's, that's exactly what I was about to go to. Yeah. Like, we have academia inviting in yes. the 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 murderous government yes. of uh, China, yeah. just come on, come teach our kids. Absolutely. And I think, you know... I mean, there's what... been a lot of compromises, in my view, yep. a lot of compromises that Australian business sure. and government have made in dealings with China, and, you know, no one can act surprised, in my view. Well, the market is so big, I think China has really caught on to something that you can really get people and populations addicted to money really quickly oh, yeah. and they have just ample money just because they have such an ample market even i mean you can even have a general population which is earning like 
dollar amount less than the developed world and just because of the sheer volume of it make it a, a day or night situation this is a lot of what's happening in hollywood for example that apparently movies that flop in the states are incredibly successful abroad yeah. but more particularly and more relevant to what we're talking about um universities mm -hmm. you know the, the chinese government can absolutely with the stroke of a pen divest essentially all of its students from one university or another they have that type of authority yep. so is it not in sydney uni's interest to keep a confucius institute open well it might be in some financial interest yes i mean i think that at some point they're going to have to make it look i, I really believe that australia's mm. going to have to make a decision yeah. uh, sooner rather than later um and it'll be a forced it'll be kind of politically forced um yeah. uh, partially because already the australian government is aligning with Trump, et cetera, yep. and all this trade war stuff. So mm -hmm. the Chinese are getting very finger-wagging and saying, how dare you do these things? Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, of course, has another reaction. The Australians have another reaction. When you, when you scold somebody, you can, there's two things that can happen. They can back down, yeah. or, or they can get their back up, and they yeah. can say, what the fuck Double are you doing, down. right? Yeah. And you're starting to see that happen now, too, right? Good. So I think, the, I think ultimately, mm. uh, and I think it probably won't take that long, um, it'll be much clearer the situation with China. But right now, it's still a bit, in my mind, a bit too murky for my liking. It is murky to a certain degree, but I don't think anyone doubts more or less what China's intentions No, I, I don't mean I don't mean that. I mean mm -hmm. murky in terms of what we're going to do. Oh, for, for That's sure. That's what I mean. That's yeah, what yeah. I mean. My, I, mean I one, totally agree with you about China's mm -hmm. intentions. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that some people bring up is that China itself is not a country that has a lot of unique... Uh, traits to it in terms of what it can offer to the uh, general global economy. So right now it's kind of built itself as a powerhouse for manufacturing. Mm. But it's not like any of, like a large part of the resources are coming from the ground of China. It's not like they're offering wages that are unseen in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world. So I'm wondering... No, but the reason they're, they, they don't, they're not offering wages, right? They're offering labor. Right. right, so labor is different than wages, right? The, more, the cheaper, the cheaper, the less wages you have, the more attractive your labor is, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, the lower true. the cost is. Right. I mean, that, that's what China did, right? They basically got all these Western companies to, to outsource mm -hmm. um, and to basically, you know, basically just, just outsource everything to China. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened to the Midwest. That's what happened to large part of Great Britain. That's what happened sure. to large parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. Companies just picked up and moved their supply chains to China, yeah. um, and it was a very weird thing. The governments even seemed to approve of it. You know, right. Governments were sort of approving of their own deindustrialization mm. and the building up of a very powerful rival. You sort of have to say, you know, what the hell were they thinking? Well, I think a couple of things. One, they thought that somehow uh, the economic growth because of that would be yeah. so great that everyone would benefit from it. And another one is uh, just... Oh, it was like neoliberal globalist ideology. Yeah, you yeah. know, oh, wow, you know, we have open borders and so we're going to have everything free trade. It's going to be wonderful. And, and, and you know, we're bringing were... them into the light of liberalism and all this yes, and that. That's it. But it's like, they come thought on. that suddenly China it's was like... going to turn into a, a liberal democracy just through sheer force of richness. But also, it's like, you know, um, the general trend in the world is not towards liberal democracy. It's not just China, right? Look uh, at Hungary, look at Poland. A lot of countries are like saying, you know, liberal democracy is interesting, but actually, we're interested <laughs> in something else. Yeah, you know, sure. Something else. Liberal democracy after World War II, gave, very much identified sort of the U.S. system, sure. right? And a lot of countries don't necessarily want to be part of the U.S. system. Mm. The problem with China right now is it's sort of forcing a binary choice. Yes. Um, we'll see how that really plays out in the long term. Sure. And, and just getting, getting back to uh, China really quickly and the point that yeah. I was making about what it can offer, my yeah. point is 
what can companies not get elsewhere? Like, can we not get the same products and outsourcing and all this from India, other Asian countries, wow. places in Africa? I mean, is, is it really, does China really have an advantage that is just so beyond the pale that no, uh, I think China does have some advantages. I think it does have some advantages. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the thing. So we can't just pretend it's an easy situation because it won't sure. be. I mean, yeah, definitely you can try picking up some of your supply chains and moving them other places, mm. you know, from China to Vietnam, for instance, mm. let's say, uh, or China to uh, perhaps India. Yeah. But, you know, you've got a, you do have uh, a pretty well-educated uh, workforce sure. in China. Yeah. Um, you've got a pretty industrious workforce in China. Yeah. Uh, you've also got the fact that you've got the Communist Party in charge there, so labor relations are going to be a piece of cake yeah, sure. uh, because no one's going to go on strike or anything else. Mm. So you've sure. got a very subservient working class, mm -hmm. uh, and you've got a, a very um, qualified, I think, very industrious and very, um, um, yeah, very industrious working class there. So from that standpoint, it's difficult to move, right? Yeah, that's true. Also, and also, frankly, you know, it's that you can't. It's hard to sort of pick up one thing and move to somewhere else in a couple of months. Oh, it takes sure. a while to do that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose the growth. I mean, it ha there has been an impact on China, even just the, well, the U.S. Been. impact. But you're right, essentially. China isn't at risk of a populist leftist being elected and uh, kind of throwing everything into into disarray. There's 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 a chance of that in a lot of places. Yeah. But not I think not China. I don't think so. But you know, the interesting thing the spillover from Hong Kong, if anything, mm. what I'm wondering about that, and it'll be really fascinating to watch because I have really no idea. But I would imagine. You know, you got two major possibilities there. One is, you know, this Hong Kong thing sort of spreads like a contagion in China, which I guess is one theory. Sure. Uh, and the other one is that there's sort of a reaction in China to Hong Kong, uh, and you get the sort of upsurge of, you know, oh my God, you know, they're the enemy, you know, and mm. we're going to bully side them. So it's, yeah. I think that's going to be really fascinating to see. Sure. Um, but it's weird, you know, she is like really, you know, the Chairman Xi. Yeah. Uh, is, is really pushing sort of the role of the Communist Party in a way that his predecessors hadn't really done. Um, and he really seems to be, I think, aware of the fact that China might have some problems without a, um, the regime might have some problems right. without a very strong and united Communist Party. Sure. And so I don't think he's going to be too willing to um, give ground. Probably not. I think that leads us, that'll lead to an interesting situation. Sure. And, and we're going to have to be careful. Absolutely, and speaking of, I mean, of uh, Hong Kong, I think Australians might have been a lot more receptive to the information that this whistleblower gave us, considering what they're seeing in Hong Kong. Sure. Because we see these types of conflicts in a lot of countries, and it's hard for us to really put ourselves in the position of people that live in countries very different from ours, yeah. uh, with a population very different from ours. But you look at Hong Kong, and that's just a, you know, it, that's just a normal Western westernized place, and to see it be cracked down on like that, I think really shakes up a lot of uh, a lot of people living in places like Australia or like the U.S. Yeah, it's got a lot of superficial Westernization, that's for sure. Mm. Um, what was fascinating to me about Hong Kong was recent elections, right? I mean, oh those yeah, numbers. Those numbers are really quite amazing, oh. uh, and to be honest with you, they surprised me. I expected, really, I, yeah, I didn't expect oh. it to be as that lopsided. I thought it'd be much. I thought it'd be less lopsided than that. Um, I was really amazed by that. That was quite something. Also, and one of the reasons I say that is because listen, like for instance, the Singaporean PM, mm. the Singaporean PM is saying, "Oh, well, actually, you know, um, we could never tolerate anything like what's happening in Hong Kong and Singapore. We would never accept that. You know, that would kill us as a country if we had riots in the streets and things like that." And he was kind of, kind of, you know, pretty much taking China's side. 
Mm. So that was like so that's one of the reasons why I was like quite interested in, uh, actually quite surprised by the sheer magnitude right. of the results in Hong Kong. Are you hopeful for the situation in Hong Kong? More so now than I was before. Yeah, mm. I think it's be harder yes. when you've got this kind of numbers. Yes, definitely. To, to pull some major stuff. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Paul. Uh, we seem to be arriving towards the end of the episode. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Always a pleasure, man. Uh, thanks so much. And to everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Adapod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. If you care to know more about the ATA, visit their website, www.taxpayers.org where you'll be able to see their mission statement, their projects, campaigns, objectives, and so much more. Remember, listening to the podcast is free, but creating it isn't. If you'd like to continue to see the Australian Taxpayers Alliance advocacy, please consider becoming a member or donating. You can do this on their website as well. This has been Adipod. We'll see you next time.